Hello and welcome to the Wabi Sabi series podcast, unlikely conversations on uncomfortable topics. I'm your host, Michelle Cox, a corporate exec turned author who has recently written a series of books about topics we don't often talk about. Things like death, grief, not having kids, and the unexplained power doctors often wield over us. Apparently, some of my books have made some people feel a little uncomfortable, but I felt that I wanted to have far more conversations around weird, wonderful, and sometimes taboo topics. So I reached out to some interesting people and asked them just one question. If there is one topic that you'd love society to talk more about, what would it be and why? And what they've shared with me has been amazing. So let's dive in and see where the conversation takes us. Even though I was, you know, about to start chemotherapy, world was sort of imploding, I didn't want to ring up a girlfriend and say, hey, could you go get me some groceries and drop me off dinner? But when they just did it, it was the greatest thing ever, but I was never going to ask. Bryony Benjamin is a keynote speaker, author and global storyteller whose viral videos have been viewed by more than 200 million sets of eyeballs. Whilst working as an executive producer at Australia's largest media outlet for women, Mamma Mia, she got the shock of her life. After feeling awful for over a year, she found out that it wasn't because she was lazy, it was because she had cancer all through her body. Turning the camera on herself, Bryony started documenting her journey in the short video, You Only Get One Life, and its raw portrayal of her experience went viral, touching millions and millions of people. It sure is a tearjerker, but definitely worth seeing. Now, Bryony's first book, Life is Tough But So Are You, has just hit the shelf literally last week. It shares what this major life wake-up call taught her about living and is packed full of helpful guidance to get you through any sticky time. Bryony is passionate about helping individuals face the toughest time of their lives with more ease and less fear, and all the while emboldening them to live the biggest, most audacious version of their story. Such a wonderful read. Bryony and I were actually introduced via my producer, the wonderful Brianna. So this interview is the first time we'd met, but the conversation and the connection between us is evident. We are kindred spirits, there's no doubt in my mind. Whether it's our disposition or the trauma that we've both been through on our cancer journeys, I'm not sure. But I'm so pleased that Bryony's come into my life. She's an absolute ray of sunshine. And if only I had a book like she's written to help me through my tough time, life would have been just that little bit better. Bryony, it's my absolute pleasure to have you here on the podcast today. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I know I feel like although we've never met in person, we have so much in common and I have been so looking forward to chatting to you today. Um, this could go anywhere, but let's um, at least try and start with a bit of direction and uh, see where we go because our stories are so similar in so many ways, but I just, yeah, I'm so thrilled that you're sharing your story in the way you are. But Bryony, if there is one thing that you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? Yeah, it would be how we really support people going through trauma. 
So when, you know, a friend, a loved one, a coworker, anyone really, when they're going through those crisis moments in life, how do you actually support well and in a way that is helpful? Because I think a lot of people just don't know and, you know, they end up saying silly things or, or just not being that helpful, even though they really do want to help and do good things. They're good people. Uh, so, yeah, that's what I think we should talk about more often. Oh, I love that topic. It's such a beautiful one. And it's something that you cover off in your brand new book that's coming out. We'll get to that back to that in a second. But why is this such an important topic for you? Can you give us a bit of a um, background in your story so people understand um, why this is something that you feel that people need more support on? I suppose for me, how this has come about is that Yeah, three years ago, I got the biggest shock of my life. I was diagnosed with stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a blood cancer, a cancer of the lymphatic system. And, you know, it's those moments, those those curveballs that life throws you that you're just never expecting. They completely knock you sideways. And you are just so reliant on the people around you in those times. And so without good support, you know, it just, it's the difference between getting through a crisis or not, really, I think for a lot of people, feeling supported, feeling connected and and how to do that well. So um, I was very fortunate that I had, you know, wonderful family and wonderful friends around me um, that, that really were very intuitive and sort of were great supporters, but I've just heard so many horror stories from other cancer survivors and other people that have just been through horrific ordeals. And it just made me think, wow, so many people just don't know how to support well or what to say. And so I write about it in the book. There's actually a whole section of the things not to say, you know, because I think people just want to fill the space sometimes, don't they? And they jump in with the sort of lines like, oh, well, everything happens for a reason or, you know, they only send it to the strong ones. Oh, that one shits me. (laughs) Oh, and you just think, how unfair would that be? You know, there's someone up there going, oh, you know, Michelle's pretty tough. Let's, you know, let's just throw a few things. things. The other classic ones that I've heard uh, luckily didn't get said to me but to other other friends, oh, you know, God works in mysterious ways or, you know, God has a plan. And if you're religious, fantastic, but you have to respect that that person might not be or they might be a bit angry at God right now as well. Um, I just love that. I, Emily McDowell, she was a lymphoma survivor who's created those empathy cards and one of her cards was, if this is God's plan, God is a really terrible planner. No offense, God. You did great on the waterfalls and the pandas, you know, and I think that just sums it up really well. It's like they're just things that people say to fill the void and fill the silence, but they're really supremely unhelpful. And what is far more helpful is actually just to sit and listen and physically be there with the person and let them talk it out with you you know and I think too we we want to jump into fix it mode don't we like and and give them all the advice and things that they should be doing and unless you've specifically been through that thing that they're going through your advice probably may not be that good anyway or you know if they do then take your advice and it backfires you're going to be in in hot water but you know often people actually have all the answers themselves you know or they sort of deep down know what they're thinking and feeling they just need time to talk it out and get to it so I think you know that that idea of rather than trying to jump into fix-it mode actually just sitting in the rubble with someone and holding their hand and just being there with them is so much more incredibly helpful. Mm, it's such beautiful advice, Barney. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that it is just a natural 
thing to do, especially with your girlfriends, I guess, you know, where you sit there and you yabber all the time with each other and it's almost like everyone's competing over, you know, chatting over each other. So they kind of, when they get over the initial shock of you being really sick, then they kind of default back into that. And then they're just talking shit all the time. And as you say, saying stuff that's not particularly helpful. The other thing I found was that some people didn't know what to say, so they just wouldn't say anything. And then they would like kind of avoid you completely because they were freaked out by the whole thing or they were worried about bursting into tears and they were the complete opposite. So what would you have in terms of some advice for people like that? You know, I suppose I'll preface anything I say with every single person is different. So they're going to want different things. So what might work for someone is not going to work for someone else. And I suppose as the person going through the trauma, I was really deliberate early on that I I wanted to make it clear to everyone around me what I needed and what they could ask and couldn't ask. So, you know, it sort of puts a bit of pressure on you to sort of set the framework, but it's really important to do it because it actually, you know, and I've actually got a page in the book that says put people at ease because it will put you at ease. You know, you're not going to, I didn't want people on eggshells around me. I didn't want them worrying about upsetting me. And so I would just say to my friends when I first saw them, hey, I just want you to know that I'm going to cry from time to time. If you need to cry, have a cry. And if you don't, that's fine too. Like it's sad if you, if you know, and you can ask me anything. I'm happy for you to ask me any questions, but I don't really want to talk about, you know, chemotherapy yet or, you know, something like that. So I think laying out that framework was really, really good. But I would just say to everyone, you know, I think it's always best just to say something. I mean, don't say the things that we were talking about then as in, you know, it happens for a reason or it's God's plan or whatever. But I think just acknowledging and making space for that is so important. And I think too, like you said, you know, sometimes people just, they go AWOL, they don't know what to say. And I think it's so much more helpful if you can just even just acknowledge what's happening and saying, you know, hi, Michelle, I'm so sorry to hear the news. I just wanted you to know I'm thinking of you and you've got this and, you know, we're going to be cheering for you every step of the way. To hear something like that is so much nicer than just to not hear from them. Or, you know, I think for me it was when I came back after chemotherapy and treatment and there were only a handful of people that when they saw me, they just never acknowledged it. And it just feels, it's such a weird, grief, isn't, isn't it? it? It's, so, it's yeah. just weird. You think, mm. hello, like, you know what I've been through. And I think maybe that comes out of, once again, an awkwardness, them not wanting to upset you, or maybe they didn't say anything at the time and now they're feeling really bad. But I still think it's better to say, look, I'm really sorry I wasn't in touch. I didn't really know what to say, but I just wanted to acknowledge that it's so nice to see you and I'm so proud of how you've done and and got through it. Like that's better than nothing, you know? Yeah. But it takes a bit of courage. I agree. And it doesn't matter if it's been a long time. I I remember one of my girlfriends, this was, you know, obviously through all my kind of cancer um, experience as well. Like my friends were pretty amazing, but yeah, a lot of them just didn't know what to do or say. But I'd lost my mum years before that. So we'd had some pretty tough conversations. And I remember talking about the grieving process and my a number of girlfriends just didn't know, you know, they hadn't lost anyone, they hadn't dealt with death and they didn't know what to do or say. But years and years later, one of my dear friends, she said to me, you know, and it actually took her reading it in my book. And she said, I never... I never knew what to say to you about your mum. I'd never lost anyone. I, you know, she said it was just to watch you, I'll get upset thinking about this, to watch you go through so much grief and pain and I couldn't fix it and I couldn't help you and I couldn't just, you know, make it go away. She said, so I just became a mute about it. And she said, it's taken me all these years to be able to talk to you about it, but I'm so sorry that I wasn't there for you. And and I was like, it's cool. The fact that you're acknowledging it now is huge. You know, that's just an amazing thing. And so... 
you know, I would say if anyone that's a friend of yours or that's listening that never, you know, kind of acknowledge, it's just weird. It's like that big elephant in the room to say far out, like I've had cancer and we haven't seen each other since. And you're just going to pretend it's not there and it didn't exist. Like that's just weird, isn't it? Yeah. And it makes you feel like they, they don't care or they're heartless, which they're not. They're just, you know. They're and, just awkward and, I, and they feel yeah, uncomfortable, don't they? But, yeah. And sometimes, you know, I think people feel like, oh, I don't know the person well enough or it's not quite close enough and I would say to that and once again everyone's different some people might hate random people getting in contact with them but for me it was like the kindness that came from the most random places that was even more moving and touching in a way you know like I had a girl a friend of a girlfriend who I'd never met and she sent me a card and a little gift just to say you know hi Bryony she said I just wanted you to know that people that don't even know you are, are cheering for you and sending you love and you know like that was just so touching so beautiful and even I was thinking before when you were saying around the words and stuff when people don't have the words and they don't know what to say just sending you little gifts sending you a little card or a little bunch of flowers or a little box of chocolates or you know some random thing that makes you know that you they're thinking about you and especially if you are on a journey of recovery like all that helps to know that these people are cheering for you and, you know, want you to get better and feel that you matter in the world. You know, it actually just gives you found, you know, for me, it gave me a real boost to ensure that I'm going to beat this. I'm going to get better. 100%. All those little gestures just give you such a little boost and lift along the, along the way, don't they? And I think the other thing is, you know, I had a lot of people jumping in, you know, with the best intentions at the beginning saying, I'll do anything. Just let me know. I'll do anything. And I write in the book as well, just do something. Like it's actually really unhelpful to say to someone, what can I do? Even though I was, you know, about to start chemotherapy, world was sort of imploding. I didn't want to bring up a girlfriend and say, hey, could you go get me some groceries and drop me off dinner? But when they just did, it was the greatest thing ever, but I was never going to ask. I think that's the other thing. Or, you know, and if you're not sure what the person might want, give them an option. So you might say, hey, I'm at the shops. I was going to get you this, this, and this. Let me know if there's anything else. Or, you know, I'm bringing around dinner tonight. Do you want lasagna or salad? What, you know, so that the choice is made. And then they can still say, no, thanks, I'm good. But at least then you've offered up things. Um, like I had one girlfriend, it was such a random thing, but she just said to me, hey, would you like me to sort your gym membership and get that cancelled? And I hadn't even thought of that. And I thought, oh, my gosh, you you admin, you know, fairy, angel. I was like, yes, that would be amazing. Um, just thinking about practical, helpful things like that. One of the things I was going to ask you, you obviously had such a phenomenal family support through all this. Like I know you, you know, you moved back with your parents to go through all your treatment. Your sister flew from overseas and your other sister, you know, that your family got around you pretty quick. Yeah, which is just so beautiful and amazing. And a lot of people have that, but there are a lot of people that don't have that through, you know, traumatic experiences. So when you sort of talk about, you know, really bringing together your tribe and your team, so what would your thoughts and um, kind of recommendations be to people of how to rally that team if it's not so much their family? Well, firstly, I'd say that it's really tough. That is a really, you know, incredibly hard thing to go through a crisis and and yeah not not have that that crew around you but you know I write in the book about uh, basically I suppose speaking to your you know in the case of a health crisis speaking to your medical professionals and asking what are all the services that are available and how do you get in contact with them you know and reaching out to them so I've put a list of resources in the back of the book actually but yeah going out and there are some fantastic services in Australia be it you know legal aid there's one in every state that can help you if you're 
you know, needing needing some advice in that regard. You know, in the case of cancer, obviously, the Leukemia Foundation, the Cancer Council and Lymphoma Australia, they have fantastic services and they have, you know, direct people that can call you, counsellors and nurses that work in the hospital system to support you. So there really are, we, you know, we're so fortunate to live in a country where there are so many wonderful services um, to reach out to, you know, and then obviously uh, groups like Lifeline and um, even, you know, in the case of a mental health struggle, we've got suicide callback services. There are, there are a lot of services which obviously there's that, you know, slightly harder barrier to entry in that you've got to seek them out and call them, but just knowing that there are people, there are so many more people than you even realise that are out there willing to help and support you. Uh, I think is nice to know. Yeah, I think it's it's really true. And one of the things that struck me with your story as well is how you reached out to people that you didn't know particularly well. And I think that was such beautiful advice. And it took me back to a couple of people that came across in my experiences as well that, you know, I'd never really had met before my um, cancer and stuff, but it was such significant people. They became, you know, sort of later because I had so many conversations with them. And it's almost like you seeing a counsellor that, you know, has got that distant kind of view of, you know, they don't know you or your life or your family or any of the kind of, you know, they don't have the history. So they're looking at the here and the now. And so you had, I think, two people you said, one guy that was in Perth that had had testicular cancer because you didn't know anyone that had had cancer before. And you just randomly reached out to him to sort of talk that through, which I think is a beautiful thing to sort of tell people about because it seemed like such a an amazing support person to you he turned into be, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I get teary thinking about it actually. Like Emily and Luke, they just became like it was game changer kind of stuff really, being able to connect with Luke. I just, I was racking my brain because I couldn't think of a single person that I knew that had had cancer. Even, you know, we've been so fortunate that even none of mum's, mum and dad's family friends, like no one, no one in the family. And then I just remembered this conversation years ago with this guy that I'd worked with at a production company. I knew he'd had some kind of battle with cancer, but he'd never, we'd never really gone into it. Anyway, I just sent him a text and he sent me the most beautiful text message back. He's like, yep, I'm here. Do you want to chat? And he ended up sending me this beautiful care package with you know tea and a teapot and I mean it was just so gorgeous but I knew like he was someone I could just call and he said you know you just call me anytime like you just call me whenever and I remember the first conversation I called him and I just said look I don't really want to know about chemotherapy or treatment or anything just yet I just want to talk to you and because it's that comfort, isn't it, of speaking to someone who you know has gotten through it and they've come out the other side. And then Emily, who she runs this amazing company called Bravery Co. And they make these most beautiful high fashion headscarves for women going through cancer because she's she's a, a graphic designer and a gorgeous sense of style. But when she was going through cancer, I thought, oh, gosh, there's really not a nice range of, you know, headscarves for people. I don't want to, you know, if we're going to do this cancer thing, we may as well make it look good. And she didn't know me from Bar of Soap. And once again, she was just so generous with her time, you know, and then I've, I've since paid that on forward to other people, which has been really lovely. And actually one of the loveliest outcomes of that is there was a girl I connected with on Instagram two years ago. She had stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma diagnosed at 19, so really young. And so we've just been in contact and, you know, chatted and texted with her for sort of two years. And then at the start of this year, she connected me with her big brother who just moved back from overseas, who's been working overseas for 10 years. 
and we've been dating for three months and, oh. you know, and so I was like, that's a really nice outcome of just being kind to someone you don't know. Oh, that's, yeah, what a beautiful so, story. Yeah. So she's okay? Like she's recovering? Yeah, she's doing really well. She's so doing so well. She's, you know, a Pilates instructor now and she's just super inspiring. So, yeah. That's such a beautiful story. But, yeah, it really resonated with me. You're talking about that, about sort of building that team up and a lot of people kind of goes to say the family. But the other thing I want to talk to you about is the um, medical kind of fraternity because we have a bit of a similar story there as well. And so look at us both getting teary. I knew we would in this. It's like, so I'm getting all nasally now. got our tissues at the beginning. You did warn me. I was like, yeah, just one sec. I'm going to go get some tissues. If you have a topic burning inside you that you'd love to talk more about and have a conversation with me, I'd love to hear from you. So drop me a line at hello at wabisabiseries.com. Let's head back to the chat. We've talked a bit about your book. It's called Life is Tough, But So Are You. It's a beautiful book. It's out in a few weeks, August 2nd. So this podcast will be out by the time that the book is out. So I'll do um, a lovely big post on it as well. It's a beautiful book and really amazing resource. I just... I couldn't stop but think every time I read a page about how amazing it would have been for me to have something like this, Bryony. So I just want to say to you, like, you know, this will really change people's lives. And God, Jesus, <laughs> it's like the biggest sookie podcast in the world. Um, you know, but also not just people like us going through something like this, but how to support others. And I think that's so important, um, you know, to your point of what we're talking about today is to know how to support someone going through this. Like, to, so to read the kind of stories and the understand what someone goes through, like, is so vital for them to be able to go, okay, how do I support my lover, my brother, my mate, my whatever? And um, my work colleague, I had some incredible work colleagues that were f- incredibly supportive that I just didn't imagine. But one of the things is the medical fraternity who you feel that should be on your team and sometimes they're not. Talk to me about your experience of your, you know, pre-diagnosed. What happened? Like how many kind of doctors did you see? What was your experience with that? Well, yeah, as you said, we have, we have quite similar stories in that, I mean, I went to a number of GPs, but I had been going to the same GP for five years and I was just increasingly getting sicker and sicker and sicker and, you know, really lovely lady. And I actually harbour no ill feelings towards her at all, but just missed the some of the bigger warning signs. I mean, the fact that I was having really quite extreme night sweats by the end, that really alarmed my mum and dad. Mum had had a really good family friend pass away from lymphoma a few years ago, so she was really clued into that. And my dad's actually a vet, so between the two of them, they kind of diagnosed what was wrong with me, and they ended up calling my GP and insisting that I get referred to a haematologist. But without those, you know, without my parents really advocating for me and keeping me on it, because, you know, I think the thing as well is when you're unwell for a really extended period of time, it all becomes really hazy doesn't it like all your sim- you know you've got all these random different things going on which actually in my case were all completely connected they were all the signs of lymphoma so itchy skin and like getting bumps all over like I just thought oh it must be a food allergy and I had this cough which I thought oh I've got some kind of ongoing persistent cough that's a lymphoma symptom because I had all my lymph glands in my chest were swollen so it's actually like putting pressure you know in that area you know the night sweats that's a that's a cancer thing like you know and, and she just I think 
just didn't really grasp the seriousness of what I was dealing with. And I think in hindsight, you know, I remember at one point my dad saying to me, you need to go in there and actually just arc up a bit more. You need to be a bit more direct and say, look, I need some answers here. And, you know, that's so against my nature. Yeah. Why not? Why don't you? Because this is something that I really talk about. I think as women as well, we're always trying to be polite and be nice and kind. And, you know, that's a big part of, you know, for me, my persona and how I like to show up in the world. But I think it's getting that balance as well, isn't it, of advocating for yourself. You can still be polite. You can still be kind to your medical professionals. But if I had my time over, I definitely would have been a bit more insistent and a bit more demanding and just said, look, I just need you to understand this is having a huge impact on my life. Like I'm waking up every night. I'm in immense pain. I'm never feeling well. This isn't normal. And, you know, my relationship I was in at the time, a few weeks before I got diagnosed, we'd been dating for about a year. And I remember him saying to me, do you realize that you've been unwell the whole time we've been dating? And it was such a shock to me because it just blurs into one after a while yeah, when you've been so unwell for so long. Yeah. And so I say to people as well now, keep really good records, keep video records. I, I actually go back now. I, I had some videos that I'd recorded before I got diagnosed where I've woken up in the middle of the night and I'd just get the, the phone out and record it because you wake up the next morning, you can't remember, you can't remember if you woke up, whatever. But, you know, and my biggest, I think, message I always say now to everyone out of this and particularly to women is you are the world's leading expert on you and your body and how it feels and so really you're the only one that knows and I think the medical fraternity and you know and GPs particularly I think they are used to seeing the worried well people who are well but are worried but if so if you are really unwell you really kind of have to really you know be a bit of a, a nice thorn in their side and really sort of demand next steps, you know? So yeah, if I had my time again, I'd probably go, well, what next? What would you do if this was you? You know, who else can I see? Who's the next specialist? I just sort of kept going back and back and back to my doctor. Okay. Get a dead end in a test result. Okay. All right. I'll go back and rest, you know? And I think the thing I found in that writing, your story is so similar to mine, which is kind of heartbreaking given you know, you've gone through it like 15 years later. <laughs> We're confident women. I think that's that's the kind of key message for me is that I am a confident person. I can sit there and advocate for others. But to put me in front of a doctor, I was always, you know, I'd always just feel a little bit, I don't know whether I just feel a little bit dumb or I can't, you know, it's that hierarchical thing. I can't um, possibly kind of, you know, go against their their word, you know, they're smarter than me, they know their stuff, you know, whatever. There was this, this undercurrent with me. But what I found is if you're not getting the, the, you know, you're going back to your your same GP and they know you and you you feel like you've got a relationship with them, go to some other random person because you can do that easily, easily now as well with medical centres. You know, go to someone else's doctor because you don't have that relationship with them. So you might be a little bit more ballsy because you're like, oh, well, I don't know this person, they don't know me. So you can be a bit of a hard ass. And the other thing I thought about recently in a different interview was around that persona actually just put on a different persona go in there and pretend you're talking and that's what I had to do in my final kind of meeting with this particular doctor that I had the um, problems with was I treated it like a business transaction because I thought if I'm sitting around a board table or you know doing a big like I am fearless you know I can like have any negotiation with I've acquired massive companies throughout my career I've run big organizations but the doctor's just the white coat syndrome. So I treated it as a business transaction and did a, almost like a work interview and I was fine. It was such a different sort of process. 
We know as well that women take a lot longer to get diagnosed with cancer than men do. And so often we're, we're far more likely to have our pain ascribed to mental health sy- symptoms. And like a lot of women that I've spoken to that have been diagnosed with cancer, same thing, same story as me. It's stress, it's anxiety, it's overwhelm. And so it's just so important, isn't it, to find a doctor. I love that that thing that you gave in, in terms of that approach, approaching it like a business transaction. And the other thing I'd say is like find someone you really click with who you feel like really is taking your pain seriously. My parents actually ended up coming down to Sydney with me and we went to another GP and I think this guy was sort of looking at me going, you know, almost judging me for being 31 years old and having my parents, like, who's this millennial princess with her parents in the room? But they were so worried because they were like, this isn't you. Like, you, you're just so flat and so exhausted and so sick. We're so worried about you. And it was funny. He, I feel like he was almost a bit judgmental about me having my parents there. That's interesting one as well. I think that, you know, where other people know you better than yourself. And I I completely concur around the, you just put up with shit. You know, I'd gone for nine months of literally having like a water discharge that I was in the end wearing tampons all day, every day. Like that is not normal. And this woman just kept saying, you've got thrush. I mean, and the repercussions with that throughout your life, I was showering four times a day. I, you know, there were so many things that were just not normal, but it takes, as you say, like your, your parents to pick that up or your boyfriend to say, you've been sick for a year. And, you know, sometimes it might be a friend sort of highlighting it to you and going, I will come to the doctor with you. And so have someone, if you can't do it yourself, have someone to advocate for you if that's what it takes, because your health is so bloody important and you need to take responsibility for your own health because these doctors are amazing. They've got incredibly educated, but they are seeing thousands and thousands of people each week that have so many different things going on with them. They can't know everything about every single body. So you have to take that responsibility. Yeah, absolutely do. Absolutely do. And, you know, the other thing is you get 10 minutes with a GP, don't you, in and out. So it's just such a limited window that you have with them. So you've got to, yeah, like be fastidious about note taking and keeping your own records, I think. You know, and then keep asking your doctor as well for those records. I, You know, I I think it sort of puts them on alert a bit if you're like, can I actually just have a record of everything we've done so far? Because I'm getting quite concerned that we're not getting it here anywhere. So you know, can you send me everything, you know, which they have to send you. So I think that's good as well. Yeah, that's, that's really good advice too. So talk to me about a decision process. So when you talk about, you know, people supporting you, you had to go through some pretty big decisions pretty quickly. Like you got the news, you were told straight away that you were going to have to have chemo. Then you were told like literally in that first meeting, I I believe that you said, you know, have an appointment with IVF doctor because you were 31 years old. So talk about that process and the decisions you had to make and then how you feel about that sort of three years on and where you're kind of at with those things because it's it's huge decisions that um, you have to go through in such a traumatic event in a short space of time, right? Well, yeah, it was a huge decision. I found it really, really complicated. You know, I felt very fortunate that I had the time to be able to do IVF at all and to freeze eggs. But yeah, the relationship I was at at the time, you know, it had been quite rocky. We were definitely not in a place ready to be talking about children and families. And so, you know, which is a good wake up call in itself, because why are you with someone at 31 years of age if you're not like thinking this could be, a, you know, someone you want to have kids with? So I do write in the book as well about thinking about the future a bit more and for young women to really take charge of their fertility rather than leaving it as an afterthought because I thought you know 31 years of age is probably a little bit late for me to be thinking for the first time properly about my fertility so but yeah having to make the decision whether to do embryos or just freeze eggs it was just 
really a bit of a tortuous process really because of the implications of what that meant if we did or we didn't and so I ended up deciding to freeze my eggs and then if we got over a certain number we would make some embryos with that which we ended up doing and then I, I felt really sad about that decision the next day because I felt like we weren't really sure what we were doing with this relationship so why would I if this is my one chance to maybe have children why would I like lock up some of my eggs with this person that we weren't sure about it I mean at the time you know he was incredibly supportive and he just said I want to give you the best chance at being a mum whatever that means hopefully we'll be together if we're not you know, whatever gives you the best shot. It's incredibly beautiful from his regard as well, it right? It is, Like, yeah, not yeah, every really. man would, you know, every person no. would be like that. Yeah, and he said, and I'm happy to, you know, sign away, sign away my legal stuff, yeah. right and just, you know, that's, that's there if you need it. But I think, yeah, I, I write about in the book just cutting yourself slack. Like, in hindsight, you have to go, I made the best decision that I could in that pressure cooker moment with the information that I had at hand with how I was feeling and you've just got to let yourself off the hook after that because there is nothing to be gained from stewing and and bashing yourself up over it so and you know it's great I've got them there it's an insurance plan it's a backup and we'll you know we'll see what comes but yeah and you how do you feel about it now are you putting pressure on yourself at all with any of this stuff or no I mean I think I wasn't planning on freezing my eggs but I did love the feeling it gave me when from the minute I got to do it. Yeah. yeah, it was like, oh, that's Gives like choice. a bit of pressure off knowing that that's there as an option, you know. It's interesting because I kept my ovaries. So through they removed all wow, my I didn't know um, that was... cervical. Yeah, so I had um, a radical hysterectomy. So all my cervix and everything was removed, but they did keep my ovaries because they didn't. I was at 31 and they didn't want to put me into menopause as well at that the doctor was like you've got too much else to deal with you don't need to deal with that shit either which I was very thankful for but then that kind of yeah just that sort of sat there for quite a while going what do I do do I freeze eggs do I you know um, do surrogacy there were so many options and but I was so hell-bent on ensuring that I um, you know wanted to spend all my energy and time in getting well and um, so I just put it on the back burner and stuff. And it was actually a number of mates that were sort of more, I don't know, not obsessed, but they were kind of more concerned about that. And it's probably a lot more uh, accepted nowadays. Like, you know, obviously with IVF and everything's progressed in the last sort of 15, 18 years. So um, I didn't do anything and I just felt it wasn't right for me. And I've never, ever regretted that. Never. It just felt right to your point in the time and just in the information and where I was. And I thought, I need to put all the energy and time into making sure that I'm still alive rather than focusing on bringing another human into the world because I don't really know if I'm going to be here yet. And so I just need to do that step first and then I'll deal with the next one. So everyone's situation's different. And I think, again, we put ourselves under so much pressure of what other people think, right, and what other people's expectations are. But you need to do what's right genuinely for us. 100%. I couldn't agree more. One of the other things that you talk about is speaking it out aloud. And I think that was sort of just when you were talking there about some of that stuff and saying things out loud and how it kind of brings it true. Talk to me about how that worked for you through your kind of journey and then um, through, you know, getting well again. You know, it's that thing, isn't it, that if you're having particular thoughts, you know, early on into my diagnosis, there were some quite dark thoughts happening of course, because you're being faced with your own mortality and you're wondering if you're even going to be here by Christmas next year. And so I remember having these strange thoughts in the first few days about, 
my body's let me down. I'm weak. I don't deserve to be here. Like I don't deserve to live. Like maybe this, I'm just one of those people that is just not going to be around for very long. And that's, you know, that's on me. And I remember uh, talking it out loud with my best friend, who's a doctor. And once it was sort of out in the open and I was discussing it with her, it seemed kind of bizarre to me almost straight away. Whereas when it was in my head, it was so real and important. And she sort of helped me understand that think about all the things that we do every single day to preserve life. We wear our seatbelt. You don't walk across the road in front of a bus. You know, every single thing that we do is, is around preserving life and that I deserve to have all the treatment necessary and be looked after and be well again. And I would be, yeah, it was, a, it was a good lesson for me in that just finding someone that you feel safe with, that you can talk it out loud to is so important. Be that a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a friend or, or a family member because things can just stew and, and, and quite quickly escalate in your mind and people can't help you if they don't even know that you're thinking those things. Yeah, or you said earlier as well, like journaling or even a video diary. You know, I think that if even if you do it pretending that you're never going to watch it or no one's ever going to read this, just getting it out, I think is incredibly helpful because we do live in our heads so much. But to your point is when you say it out loud or whatever, you're like, oh, that does sound a bit ridiculous, but it's been living inside my head for weeks now. <laughs> totally, totally. And yeah, actually, to your point about journaling, I was religious about journaling through chemotherapy. So a girlfriend, um, this gorgeous Dutch friend of mine sent me The Artist Way. I don't know. Have you ever done it? The, no. Yeah, it's by, um, oh, what's her name? Julia Cameron. It's a really famous book called The Artist's Way and it's a 12-week course about reconnecting with your creative self. Um, so it gives you a series of questions and activities, but as part of it you do the morning pages, which is the idea that first thing in the morning you just do a brain dump of everything in your mind and get it out on paper. Ooh, that would be scary for me. <laughs> I think that's yeah. why I haven't journaled. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe, maybe. And, but she says exactly that. She's like, you can, there's no right or wrong way to do it. You can. It can be a big old whinge fest. You might bitch for three pages. You know, whatever is in your mind, you get it out and you put it on paper and it's this idea that she said it's like this spiritual windshield wipers it just clears the muck and it, Ooh, I like it orders that. it and it sort of takes the cloud of thoughts that's in your head and just puts it on the paper you know it's a, an organizational process really so that and if you do it day after day after day it really helps you just find clarity around what you're thinking where you're going really helpful if you want to write a book later and you want to read back on your notes <laughs> did but, you ever think you were going to write a book no or, no no not at all just came from the viral video yeah, I'm a video person. And then, um, but actually the process of doing that morning pages every day, it just reconnected me to how much I love writing. Like I loved writing in high school. I always, I was, English was my favorite subject, you know, I just adored writing. Yeah, but I think that practice of just doing it every day and that discipline of doing it every day, I was like, oh, I can write. I love writing. This is great. So, oh, how yeah. beautiful. That's fabulous. I want to finish off the just a sort of full circle with there's a quote you write in your book that really resonated with me and it was you get to decide what energy is allowed around you and it's such an important thing through people that are going through a pretty traumatic experience and you know with the whole discussion today around you know building your team that support you and how others can support people going through um, traumatic experiences but to me it, it's such an important thing in life period and a dear friend of ours that we both know Tina Tower I interviewed her she was my second person I interviewed and it was about removing toxic people from your life and so that quote really resonates with that and I think about this continuously about does this situation serve me? Does this job, this person, this, you know, whatever, 
Or if not, like I have the ability to remove that from my life and ensure that, you know, the energy around me is is the energy I want it to be. So talk to me about how you, you know, why that's such an important part and why you came to realize that in your life and, and how it sort of helped you today as well, because it's such a beautiful quote. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that sometimes we feel like we need a crisis to actually step into our power and ask for what we need. And, you know, and it was kind of this nice gift that cancer gave me. It was like, oh, I can just say I don't want to go to that. I can just say I don't want to do that. Like I don't want to hang out. I don't know if you've ever heard Martha Beck, who is Oprah Winfrey's life coach. She talks about, and as does Glennon Doyle, about that, that women need to almost be dying to actually ask for what they want. And, yeah, I look forward to a future in a world where women don't feel that what is it is it a martyrdom is that what our problem is or it's the fact that we are nurturing and mothering and that's yeah, our thing and we don't want to be a bitch and we don't want yeah, to be a nasty don't want to be a burden yeah I mean for me now like I'm living with chronic fatigue so I still have to just oh, be wow. really careful about my energy usage so for me it's still got that constraint on my life where I have to really be careful about the energy I'm around, what I put my energy in. I have zero tolerance policy now for people that don't energize my life and, and make me feel good. You know, there's that beautiful line in Julia Baird's book, Phosphorescence, but she talks about people are either penthouse people or basement people. And after spending time with them, you feel like they've taken you up to the penthouse or down to the basement, you know, and she's like, be a penthouse person. That's a good philosophy in life. Totally. Yeah. Isn't quite it? Like that. <laughs> you know, and that's of course not saying you can't be around friends that are having a tough time and need support and all those sort of things. Of course not. But you know what I mean? It's those people, isn't it? That people that lift oh, you suck up the energy out of you. Yeah. 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 When people say to me around they don't believe in spirituality or energy or whatever, I go, have you ever been with someone and you walk away and you're exhausted? I'm like, that's that energy transference. Yes, that's yes. that's real. Or there's someone that lights up a room and you can go into a room and go, whoa, what's going on? Yeah. Like that's where energy is live and well. Totally. Like that's where you get to feel it. But yeah, it's such an important point um, when you're sick and when you're going through traumatic experiences or grief or whatever, surround yourself with people that make you feel good and don't make no excuses for it sometimes those people are not your family and that's okay you know build your own family like it's you know those people that love and support you and get rid of those people that are toxic in your life yeah. like it and not just in a crisis in life <laughs> like it's just so so important you know we have such limited time you get to decide the people around you and the way in which you want to live your life and the people that make up your world is a huge huge component if not the biggest component of that so Bryony you're, what are you, 33? 35. Oh, 35 now. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no. 30, yeah. Oh, you, but thank you. Young you. chicken, you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, you look like 29. Are you kidding? <laughs> so 35 and you've had a tough life so far, but you're, you know, you're uh, amazing. You've just such a beautiful human. What is it that you think is the toughest part about you? Or the thing that you're most proud of? Yeah, look, I'm really proud with how I got myself through lymphoma. I'm really proud that I feel like I kept my good spirits the whole time and and not saying that I wasn't sad and had days where I felt really flat and down, but I overarchingly, I just felt like I 
tried to inject as much humor as I could into it. I made it as light as possible. You know, we were talking about Ash Barty's mindset coach over her Wimbledon win. And he said the principles that they live by are compete, have fun and play. And I really feel like I brought as much fun and playfulness into a really tough situation as I could. And it made it a lot nicer and less crap to get through. And, you know, that's really what the book's about. It's these are all the things that, yeah, this is tough, but you've got this and you can do it. And these are all the things that made it a lot less icky along the way. Brani Benjamin, you are such a beautiful soul. I can't wait to meet you in person. So thank you Likewise. so much for chatting today. It's been beautiful. Uh, I've absolutely loved our time together. Thank you for having me on this beautiful podcast. If you'd like to learn more about today's guest, you'll find all the show notes and interesting links on our website, wabisabiseries.com. If you'd like to hear more unexpected conversations, please subscribe to the series, follow us on our socials, or grab one of my books. And if you're in a generous mood, I'd love you to share the episode, or maybe even rate, review, and comment on the series. It really does make a difference. Until next time, be sure to claim your own piece of Wabi Sabi, and walk proud in your perfect imperfections.